It's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Richard Pear, uh, who is a photographer with um, a particular affinity for architecture. His works have been um, exhibited widely and are held in many major public collections of photography. His most recent project is on, um, uh, on the architecture of Le Corbusier. He was the founding curator of the photography collection of the Canadian Centre for Architecture at its inception in 1974. He has been a consultant to the collection since 1989. And among his exhibitions and publications are Courthouse, Photographic Documents, Photography and Architecture, 19, uh, 1839 and 1939, Fidel Ando, The Color of Colors of Light. And of course, I had no idea about all that when I thought about inviting Richard Pear uh, to be the key, key owner here because I owned this book uh, called uh, the, um, the Lost um, uh, Vanguard, Russian Ordinance Architecture. When Russian battalion avant-garde, Russian modernist architecture at 2022, and I thought um, Richard would be would be actually the perfect person who could tell us about the sort of things that we lost, but things that still um, haunt us. Um, and then, uh, and actually, Richard told me that there were only how many you said uh, like just one thousand uh, books like that published in Russian um, and funded by um, the Foundation of Russian avant-garde. So, um, like in many familiar cases, um, um, the fascination uh, with uh, Russian uh, modernism uh, was developing gradually in Richard's life. In one of his interviews, he explains how it happened, how this sort of, this folder, um, <coughs> whatever, how it all um, happened. So, in 1993, he says, in the uh, gallery of a friend, I ran across a picture of Vladimir Kaplan. And his assistants building the model of the monument to the Third um, International. The, and the photograph entered the CCA collection, the um, Canadian uh, Center for Architecture. And as a result of my interest, my friend invited me to join him on a trip to Moscow. That was the beginning. So, and so this interest eventually resulted in this impressive um, visual document, as, as I mentioned already. And again, in, uh, in an interview, uh, Richard Perry explains his unusual fascination with these structures of the past, and I quote, in looking at the work of the Russian modernists, uh, my aim was to get beneath the surface, uh, to attempt to fathom uh, the, their intentions and render that intent through the filter of time. And I think this, this fascination with what time does to us and in pursuing the structures is crucial. The, the idea uh, was to articulate the poetic vocabulary of modernism and also to allow the accumulation of time to have a part in dialogue, um, to give a depth and richness to the subject um, to, to the subject it might not have had when well, <coughs> well, it was well, sorry. Again, to repeat my main idea, um, on, and they did that has been already articulated several times today, I think it's precisely this after after taste and after life of constructivism made possible by time that attracts our attention again and again to the structures that might have been um, overlooked at the time of their inception. So today, Richard Perry will talk about his work at Kislovac, the Argenic Kids Sanatorium, and the end of modernism in Russia. Welcome. So I just went outside, and the first thing I heard was, be near me, Lord, when dying, and played on the carillon from across the street. It seemed particularly appropriate. Um, so it actually goes back a lot further than that, and 
somebody standing there asked me to tell a story. When I was a kid, I was a choir boy at Canterbury Cathedral. And it was the time when there was a famous Anglican cleric there whose nickname was the Red Dean. He was, his name was Hewlett Johnson. And on, he, he had been completely bamboozled effectively by Stalin and was invited to go to Russia on many occasions. And he would come back from these forays and give us lengthy sermons on Sunday night. I was eight and a half years old. Uh, about the five-year plan and progress in, in the Russian industry. industry. Uh, some of that kind of outer waves of what was then the Khrushchev thaw res- resounded and continued to echo in my mind ever since. Uh, then a little later, I went to school with, and I had a wonderful art teacher who would give lectures about modernism he didn't know much about Russia because nobody did then. This is the mid, mid-50s, early 60s. Uh, but he would give us lectures on the Villa Savoie and Ronchamp. And so again, another 30 years on or so, I find myself, 40 years on, I find myself photographing all the work of Le Corbusier that I can reach. So the story about seeing the Tatling picture Yes, that was certainly a key moment because as the curator of photographs for the CCA, one of the great lacunae in that collection was the lack of Russian modernist material. It was very difficult to come by and I couldn't locate anybody who could get me in in days before the fall. So in the end, one winter afternoon, I'm wandering around the annual photography fair and I come to this stand full of pictures of Russian modernism. And there was the Tatlin pictures, Catherine Cook's frontispiece in, in her wonderful book. And I never thought that I'd see a print of it. And so I bought it instantly for the collection and asked my friend Harold Schickler, who had it, where he'd got it, and he said, oh, I've been going in and out of Russia. And I said, oh, I've always wanted to go to Russia. And I said, well, why don't you come with me the next time I go? So I, of course, accepted with alacrity, and he was very kind and introduced me to all of his contacts there. And on that first occasion, I met Alexander Brodsky, who's become a, he's like a brother I never had. And he was naked in a banya with a bunch of other of his Russian friends, and so was I. And after the bath, we went to a little lot of vacant ground nearby, of which that part of Moscow was then still packed, left over from bomb damage from the Second World War, surrounded by those concrete barriers that everybody knows and were always falling away a little bit, so it was always possible to squeeze through. And there were all those multitudes of back paths and byways that Muscovites know so well. And there we sat in the sun having what was called a little slam, which was a bottle of vodka and some cold meats. After that, he took me through the subway and gave me this extraordinary tour of the Moscow subway stations that he loved the most. So that was the beginning of my travels in Moscow. I started looking at what was left of the Russian avant-garde legacy with the prompt of the Tatlin photograph to 
persuade me that it was something that I should do. And I was astonished to find that there was almost everything still standing. And that has remained the case all the way through my voyages around the old Soviet orbit over the succeeding, I don't know, initially it was the, the biggest period, was the first decade or so, but I've been still going to make trips whenever I can. And ultimately I was consumed with the kind of anxiety that I had not found satisfactory ways of telling the end of the story. And I knew about the Kislevodsk sanatorium from Jean-Louis Cohen's original list that he gave me when I first set out on this venture 20 years plus ago. And it had been there, and I'd been asking people what it was like, and so said, oh, you know, it's too late, it can't be very interesting, it's, uh, it's, don't worry. And so finally, I thought, well, I'd better go anyway, because it's Ginsburg, and it couldn't be all bad, could it? And so I went to the <laughs> Ministry of Culture again to go and see Pavel Horoshilov, and get my permissions. And I said, well, how long do you think I need to spend in Kislevaz? He said, oh, you only need an afternoon. It's not important. So I got my permit and off we went. I was to be the guest of the director of the Shaliapin Museum. We arrived at Minerali Vodi and the car was there to pick us up and off we went. And he said, well, where would you like to go? And so I said, I would like to go to see the Ojanakidza Sanatorium, please. And that very afternoon, we went up to the base of the stairs at the bottom of the little valley on, on which it stands. And there were Leonidas stairs, which you see first here. And that was the, an astonishing revelation. So anyway, let's go back to see a little bit of early history. This is Ginsberg's diploma project, uh, outdoor concert pavilion. And it's like looking at Corbusier's Maison Blanche and then looking at the Maison La Roche in terms of the contrast between that and this, which is not that much later. I mean, the, the diploma is 1914, and this is a decade on or so from then. And this still remains Ginsburg's greatest work of genius. There's no question about it. But I just wanted to give you a little reminder about what an extraordinary building this was. And I'm sure everybody here knows that the glass curtain wall here went to the ground originally. And Milutin lived on the roof up there on the top. And he was the commissar of finance. He was a polymath. He'd done training in stage design. He was a mathematician and a man of many parts. And quite recently, by extraordinary circumstance, I discovered she came to Jean-Louis' lectures at the Institute of Fine Arts that his daughter lives just a few miles away from me in New Jersey. And she invited us over and was talking about how Milutin had made the furniture for, the, for their apartment on the roof himself. And she still has 
the, the pieces that he made in, in their house. And he was a very cunning and, and remarkable man in that he managed to disengage himself gently enough from the whole regime as the politics shifted and also achieved somehow or other the right to get his family out of Russia and to the United States, complete with a good number of their goods and chattels. He died and the house continued to sink into a decrepitude into which it is now. Uh, It's one of the most alarming prospects of of contemporary Moscow that this building is still in a state of decrepitude which is really positively disastrous and unthinkable anywhere else almost in the world. Um, It is one of the key buildings of the 20th century. I don't think there's any dispute about that. It had enormous influence. Korb saw it. Uh, when he was in Moscow to do the Centre Soyuz, Ginsburg gave him drawings, which he took back and used them at great value to his own estimation when he was putting together the drawings for Marseille, which comes 20 years later. It was interesting as a little footnote to note that Jean-Louis Cohen found in the Fondation, those blueprints from Ginsburg and took them back and hung them on the wall in Moscow, which was a quite a moving moment in the recent exhibition at the Pushkin Museum <coughs> with my picture of the interior above it. It's very Corbusian in its vocabulary, but he beat Corb at his own game in a way because Corb at this point is still only building relatively small bourgeois villas. And it's not until the Unité d'Habitation in Marseille that he gets to deal with the idea of an apartment house. His biggest project was the Centre Soyuz and remained so until he gets to India, which is a good deal later. The interior street, complete with swastika, smoked on the roof, please note. (coughs) And the roof... The roof garden that was never fully achieved, and yet somehow on this extraordinary day in the spring, there was a roof garden there, complete with trees growing out. Uh, This picture I like because it kind of sums it all up. You've you've got the earliest building, which is still the most radical in the foreground, Um, the Stalinist tower in the distance, the, the White House, And through the chink, you can see the new American embassy, which you can almost spit over the wall to. The um, problem that curses the Narkonfin building is that very proximity and location, because the land on which it stands is immensely valuable now and could so easily be replaced with a 30, 40-story slab of mediocre condominiums for rich Russians and the building staggers on from one year to the next and the frost comes and gets in behind the stucco and pops more off and it gets worse and worse. It's a little better maybe at the moment because the guy who owns most of it now is allowing 
artists in there to live and do their thing. And there was a recent article in the Architectural Review that deals with those problems and how the current occupants are kind of self-aggrandizing, petty bourgeois, people trying to stand aside from the crowd and how the building was intended for the idea of communal living. So people are trying to be individuals in a place that was designed for community. Katya Minutina talks about how amazing it was when she was a little girl running through the building and it really was a communal house. All the doors were open, people could come and go and the children's running in and out of everybody's apartments and there was a sense of freedom and liberation and living there in that space that must have been quite wonderful. I mean, she's still really moving when she speaks about it. <clears throat> this is the interior of a typical apartment as it was at the time when I was there. And this is the double height apartment. I'd been trying to get in for ages and, and the uh, strategy was to go and hang around outside basically with the guy who was driving for me and wait to see whether somebody would come by. Eventually somebody did, shopping bags in hand, and we asked if he would let us in, and I thought, well, perhaps he'd let me through the door. And on the contrary, he, he both let me in and he let, invited me into his apartment and said, oh, you can go anywhere. And so I did, and the driver was sitting at the table talking to him and I was going upstairs and looking into all the rooms and taking pictures of the bedside table and everything else. And then I came down and this confronted me as I came out of the door. And it's for me perhaps the most wonderful kind of um, metaphorical picture that sums up the whole intention of what I was about, even though it's rather less architectural than some of the other images. Um, a quick description of the interior gives you Raphael's um, Dresden Madonna that was brought to Moscow after the war as, uh, as a trophy and hung in the Pushkin Museum for a while. Um, to its right is the very famous uh, genre piece from the 19th century of the squire and his serfs out hunting and they've taken a break to uh, have a snack and to tell tall tales to each other. Uh, on the shelf over the uh, couch, there are those standard figurines of the young pioneer with skis and the dancing girl and the little row of elef elephants. One of the elephants is missing, fallen and broken. On either end, there's a couple of plastic palm trees and there's a little boat which came from Odessa as a souvenir and there's a thermometer on the wall to the right, uh, again, that tells you how cold it is in winter. And there's Pushkin, young Pushkin, which everybody knows. Brodsky modeled a wonderful, perfect replica from memory for one of his installations. On the table are the remains of the meal from the night before, boxes of tea, porridge, and vodka, of course, which we finished before I left. So anyway, a little prologue that was. And then I finally arrived in Kislevodsk, and here, I had discovered this drawing in the Phototech in Moscow. This is a slight aside, but I think it seems worth mentioning. 
Uh, this is another sanatorium by Merzhanov that was built for the NKVD. And as you can see from the rendering, it, it has a good aspect that faces out onto some open ground. And I couldn't find it in the town. I asked the people at the museum whether they knew where it was. They said, oh, no, no, I've never seen that. I couldn't, couldn't believe what I was hearing because it's a prominent building. I knew it had got built because there's a photograph of a section of the right-hand curved wing. Eventually he said, yes, I do know where it is actually. And he drove us and we parked across the other side of the park right in the centre of the town. And somewhat furtively we set off to, to cross the park and walked down a little side street and climbed through the fence. There it was, right in the centre of the city, blocked out completely now by poplar trees, I think obviously uh, to hide the fact that it was an NKVD sanatorium from the rest of the world. And now it's abandoned and uh, just a shell, basically. But it's interesting, it is also 1934, and the, therefore just after the 32 fiat, there are classical bits and pieces here and there that suggest that he's thinking about how to satisfy the censors um, in Moscow. <clears throat> then we come to another sanatorium in Kislovodsk that's by Ginsberg, believe it or not. And this is, I think, the most problematic of all the things of Ginsberg's that I've seen and that it seems to be completely confused and at sea. Um, it's trying, it's 34 and 35 actually, and he's grappling with how to get something that will pass. And so he pastes these little urns onto the top and these peculiar um, zigzag balconies. I have no idea where they come from. They don't seem to fit. They look very much as like an afterthought. And there's a sense of indecision in the entire project that doesn't add up. I mean, it's a, it's a very unsatisfactory building from many points. It has some of the tropes that appear elsewhere. There's the pilotes and the bridge leading from the dormitory block to the clinical block. But it, it doesn't work. It's not a success. Uh, this is another project that he's doing at the same time in, in, for a park in Tbilisi. This is uh, 35, and it has all the kind of gigantism of the new aspect of the um, rules that are coming down from Moscow, and yet it still has some kind of architectural integrity from, from what the rendering sees. I mean, the statue appears to be absolutely huge. <clears throat> but then he um, gets started on the Kislevodic Sanatorium. I put this one in because it's, uh, this is Fomin and Levinson in, in St. Petersburg. It's the Lent Soviet communal house, which is also, again, this, the same date, 34, 35, and has a similar level of detail and finish, as does the Kislevog Sanatorium. So we arrive at the bottom of the hill, and Leonidas' stairs set the tone of the whole 
program for the building. There are two ways to get there. When you come in for the first time, you arrive by bus or whatever, however you get there, up the hill on the other side of the ridge, and you pull into the front of, a, of the main reception block. But the shortest way down to the center of the town and the mineral springs and the little restaurants and things that were probably there in one form or another the, even then is down the Leonidas stairs. And this becomes the main axis back and forth to the sanatorium itself. That's Ojana Kidza, incidentally, standing on the plinth at the top. He was added later. There is a wonderful program to the way the stairs ascend the hillside. Uh, you get initially a very modest rise through the levels of the uh, lower levels of the hills. And then you come to the circular amphitheater. And it's still a very pleasant and popular place. I read an article recently or an outline for a paper that somebody's writing comparing this with the other flight of stairs on the other side of the valley that are kind of much more Stalinist and bombastic in their vocabulary, saying how wonderful it is that people are still using the, the stairs on the other side of the valley, and everybody seems so optimistic there, but isn't it a pity that they aren't paying attention to Leonidas stairs, which is not what I found when I was there. I mean, even though the traffic may not be quite as brisk going up and down, though I'm not even sure that that is the case, there is a sense of playfulness and appropriateness of scale in Leonidas stairs that is absolutely not apparent in the other scheme, <clears throat> which is actually further up. You've got to do more climbing to get to the top as well. But you can see people are having a great time. I mean, it's very evident. So here is the first introduction of these extraordinary columns that Leonidas introduces. And they reappear again in the interior. I'm not quite sure what the roots of this are. Perhaps some other people can make some suggestions. I mean, one thinks about Karnak, perhaps, or Sakara even. Um, Sakara, of course, was then being explored by uh, Jean-Philippe Lauer, and he was retrieving the first masonry columns in the world that are a little bit akin to this, but not completely so. These wonderful benches that have the double role of maintaining the hillside and, and keeping the slope back. <clears throat> the fountain, which you could perhaps consider as taking some of its um, symbols from the idea of, of the gearing for a, a belt-driven machine. Maybe that's a little far-fetched, but one finds these uh, machine motifs in other discrete places. And then there's this extraordinary balcony at the, at the first landing as you're descending, with, which is like a bracket with these baroque rails around the, the uh, perimeter, complete with little baubles, bubbles along the top edge. <clears throat> It's like a bracket fungus in, in its shape and outline, and these again appear a little later on in the interior. <clears throat> and here we are approaching the final ascent up to the level of the plaza that 
introduces you to the main focus of the whole complex, which is the therapy block in the center here. It's not the tallest. The two dormitory blocks are to left and right. Um, the one on the left is for the more general people of the heavy industry um, sanatorium visitors. And the one on the right, which we can't see here, is for the um, non nomenclatura, who have more luxurious accommodations, needless to say. Um, Ginsberg is grappling with the idea of how to confront the request for a more classical vein or historicist vein in, in, in the structure. And essentially, his only concession here is, is these brackets that he puts on the edge of the pergola along the roof. Elsewhere, you'll see a few other things, but essentially, it remains still a modernist building. The budget for this building was absolutely enormous. It was, uh, if I can find it, It was millions of rubles at a time when you could buy 100 kilos of flour for 150 rubles. And this is at the height of the famine when flour presumably was very expensive. I think it's something like 33 million rubles. I'll check it later and tell anybody who wants to know precisely. <clears throat> um, incidentally, the windows are not original. They've just been replaced about two or three years before I got there, much to my chagrin. Had I gone there five years earlier, I would have found the whole place intact still. Here you can see the original windows, double, double glazed. Uh, there are some missing panes. It's very subtle in the detailing here. The quality of the materials is absolutely superlative. Uh, the finishes of, of the detailing are carried out to a higher standard than anywhere else that I saw throughout the entire uh, Travis of the modernist legacy as I discovered it in, in my years of travels. Beautiful stones and uh, really carefully thought out color schemes which are still intact in many places. This is the main entrance to the therapy block. Another detail of the window. You can see uh, to the upper right, the very last, uh, the, the second pane down, is a, a acid etched or sandblasted glass. Uh, so there was this counterpoint in the textures of the glass even that he was thinking about, which is a beautiful detail that I never encountered anywhere else. These are the original paint color schemes. I could see where it was flaking, that there are no coats beneath it. And this is the grand entrance. And there is a kind of imperial dignity to the scale of it, and yet it does not topple over into the kind of bombast of Stalinist architecture that is to follow so shortly thereafter. There's an almost Chinese quality to the painting on the wall, to the extent where the people in, in the sanatorium were propagating a rumor that it had been presented by Mao, which is not the case. I've, the artist is known. To the right of that main entrance is this extraordinary indoor pool. The back wall used to be mirrored, and the tiles around the perimeter of the pool are also replacements, which were probably originally the same glass tiles as you see in the interior of the pool, which are absolutely beautiful quality. And it's a lovely milky blue-white glass that, that has a very 
soft and elegant texture. Um, the other thing that's really remarkable is the bench that covers the heating registers uh, along the wall on the right, which is a kind of design for furniture that I've never encountered anywhere before or since. Uh, the pool, incidentally, is filled with warm, sparkling mineral water, which would be like swimming in Perrier. The pool itself is pretty much intact. The um, approach to the pool from the other side has changed. It used to have uh, some stairs leading down left and right, and, which has now been replaced by the ladder. <clears throat> and the rail is very, in the foreground is very slightly different to, to what it was when it was first installed. But the general aspect in this direction is pretty much as it was. The lamps still exist. Again, this is absolutely extraordinary. I, I've never found any other light fixture in all the time I've been looking, except perhaps the one in the Ginsburg building, which is, doesn't seem quite right, but it's probably the period and put in by the people who lived there. Uh, this is the next level up when you're approaching the uh, bridge that leads across to the other bathing establishment where people would still go for their uh, water treatments. I mean, you can stand and be bombarded by high-pressure hoses, and um, there are bars of different um, chemical comp- compositions of the water that, where people are immersed for amounts of time according to prescription. <clears throat> and that's the bridge. It leads across, which is similar to the one we saw in the other um, sanatorium, but much more well resolved. Um, the interesting thing to consider also is is the difference in the client here, or the, the commissioner. Um, if, if you think about Milutin commissioning the Narconfin building and Ojonikidza, who's a very flamboyant character who's been around Stalin since their early years together in Baku. They used to work out how to rob the banks together in 1905 to fund their revolutionary activities. He rose through the ranks to become commissar of heavy industries involved with with, um, all kinds of military campaigns during the uh, Civil War and the First World War and the the period immediately after the revolution and is immensely powerful. He's one of the few people who could actually say no to Stalin uh, and contradict him and until he fell out of grace in 1937, the same year that this sanatorium was commissioned and shot himself rather than wait to be shot. The difference between the two of them is, is... Milutin seems to be much more the cosmopolitan and and with a true commitment to the whole socialist idea. And even if he gives himself the penthouse, it it was not too hubristic, perhaps, in that he was the head of the the ministry. And it was also a space that had originally been intended for mechanicals that they couldn't afford, and so it was empty space, and so he elected to move in there himself. And the atmosphere, the way that pavilion fits onto the roof, it integrates it with the roof, and the people from the building must have been coming up there and going around the roof all the time, as it was. But here, Ochoa when 
he comes down for a visit, a special presentation is given, set up for him. This is a story that's narrated in Khan Magomedov's book on, uh, on Russian avant-garde, the second book. Uh, one of the other architects on the team recorded a, a story in his autobiography saying that when Ortsenikidze arrived, there was a special presentation of the model and on a separate table there was another model of the, of the separate quarters that had been built for himself. And when asked what he thought, he said, well, it's great for me, but it's too posh for the, my lackeys. Um, so there's a difference of the more equal than others that is much more apparent in, in the whole program of this. And I think that Militin seems to respond in a way to the two clients in very different ways, and you end up with a much more um, grandiose and, and flamboyant program in this sanatorium. Shostakovich, incidentally, stayed there in the 1950s and said that he liked it very much. Uh, the buildings are wonderful, and, and uh, the only problem is that the people aren't really very polite. Um, by very polite, I mean very polite. They're polite, but they're not very polite, he says. <clears throat> uh, Ginsberg's also obviously looking at Midway Gardens and you come up with these very Wrightian urns, which are, again we've seen before, but on a much more diminished scale, dotted about on the other sanatorium that I introduced the Kislevods project with. <clears throat> and there's the interior of the... Uh, bathing block with the same glass tiles you'll see and, and well-chosen marble uh, for the uh, what, what you might call the, the rail, a banister, prop, support uh, to the left and right. Uh, what you see to the right-hand edge of the picture is the new vinyl windows of the original um, wonderful circular space that it was a garden for people to go and relax in between treatments. It was originally double-walled, and you can see the remains of the glass that is still in place, uh, with, which was lit from behind and in between the two, two walls of the, the glass, the glazing. Around are a series of mosaics, beautifully finished and carried out in, in a kind of grey, succession of grey um, tesserae. Nobody can tell me who designed them. Somebody muttered about Leonidov, but it doesn't really seem quite likely somehow. <clears throat> and it's still very active, I mean, even though the paint's falling off. The, the, there's a wonderful sense of, of relaxation and, and, and pleasure in, in, in the people who are there. Nobody seemed to be particularly sick, I must say. <clears throat> there's the... Uh, curtain walls it used to be and you know, I, I sort of furious at myself that I hadn't gone sooner I mean, it's to my great regret that this project is not included in, in the um, first edition of the book and actually we are now preparing a second edition and, and I'm intending to add some work on this building I mean it, 
I think that these have to be original carpets, which is astonishing. It doesn't seem that they could be from the Soviet era. They're much too well designed somehow, and they seem to fit in with the whole program. Uh, the massage benches are certainly original, and the color schemes too. Again, the windows have been replaced. Here's the whole complex. Uh, originally, the far side used to be an open roof. It was also used for tuberculosis treatments, and in those days, the theory was that the best way to get cured was to be out in all weathers in, in the cold. And the, the interesting parallel is, is uh, Alto Paimio Sanatorium, which is going up at the same time as this. <clears throat> and these decorative urns, Again, I think are nods to the senses, but they're quite interesting in the way they're painted by hand. <coughs> uh, this is the entrance to Corpus II, which is the um, wing for the nomenclatura. They have their own balconies and, and spacious rooms. I was not allowed into any of the rooms. Uh, I'm told that all the furniture has been changed, but, which is probably true. But originally, it was very sort of Breuer-esque, Mart Stam, whatever you want, um, in its steel tube furniture. <clears throat> He's reaching for a way to maintain his integrity as an architect under the new stipulations. And doing a pretty decent job, I think. I mean, the building is, is it doesn't, one has to admit, rival Narconfin in its originality. There's, it's, it's impossible that it could under the circumstances, but it is still a really pretty extraordinary piece of work for the period and dodging the bullet, as it were. <clears throat> this is the interior of the library where there is a large collection of documents and photographs of the building under construction and a couple of albums of it in its heyday with treatments going on and all the latest equipment. Uh, it was briefly occupied by the, by the Germans in the Second World War, but they appear to have done no damage and left it intact. That's an original desk with um, socket uh, pockets in the top for books coming in and books going out. It has uh, roll tops at the back. Um, this is the back side of that block and the winter garden is immediately behind the trees. Which, again, there are introductions of little capitals at the top, if you would call them that, and one wonders whether he's thinking about what he has to do to get the drawings passed. This a little embrasure and the classical kind of vocabulary of the uh, frame around the doorway, but it's inserted into a curtain wall so that it still has that modernist aesthetic. And you can see the quality of the way the details are put together. There is nothing in the least bit provisional about this building, in which there certainly is in, in the Narconfin building. The, the, he's dealing with a lot of experimental materials there, but when it comes to insulation, if you look behind the, the 
peeling decaying stucco, you will find chopped straw. Uh, you would not find that here because the climate doesn't need insulation because it's so mild. But <clears throat> uh, this is the interior of the winter garden. This is Leonidoff's interior, pretty much certainly. I don't think there's any doubt about it, uh, including the kind of snowflake motifs on the ceiling, which have always been there. There are photographs of it in the Phototech in Moscow that show it um, without the little arrangement in the, in the center. The, the, that's added later. And the doors have been replaced to the left and right of the apsidal ending. But it, the, the columns that we first saw in, in the um, gazebos or little pavilions on the stairs are repeated here with metal capitals. The roof, this is the the nomenclatura block and still has not had a flat roof fitted or had not at that time. It's probably been done by now. But you get a sense of what the original aspect of it would have been like. Uh, there was a roof garden there which was completed and there are a couple of photographs in the phototech of people sitting in deck chairs with um, flower beds filled with nasturtiums and things like that. This is the main approach when you come up from the road. And that's the central uh, block where you arrived and registered. And <clears throat> the interesting detail here is this kind of vertical um, window, which is quite enormous and not a vocabulary that I've encountered in quite this form before. Um, Again, I think as an effort to appease the senses, there's a kind of vertical coffering that gets started. I can't think of any other term to define it. I've, I've asked some people how you would describe it, and they sort of look confused. And, and I spoke to Robin Middleton about it recently and said, well, how would you define vertical coffering? He says, what do you mean, paneling? And I said, no, it's not paneling. But in Magnitogorsk, there's the Miners' Club, which was the first building that was completed there. And there is literally vertical coffering, like the, but it's absolutely square. It's like the ceiling of the Pantheon in Rome, but it's, it's, it's on an upright surface. It makes no sense architecturally. But it's, it's like a, a teasing the senses, Hey, here's classical. You want classical? I'll give you classical. And they're sort of trying it out for a while. And here is another case of a similar kind of challenge to, to the establishment about what do you mean, what do you want for capitals? I think that what they were thinking of is Corinthian orders. But um, I, again, what's the source of this motif? Is it, is it Assyrian capitals or... Ancient Egypt, or, or where might you find a similar top to a, a column? And then if you look a little further down, in the distance you see columns with flutes but no capitals. And this is the main axis that leads th right through the building, uh, through the oculus, which we'll see in a minute, towards the dining room, which is on the very far side to the left of the window and the opposite end. Here's the oculus, and we encounter again the, the bracket forms that we saw on the balcony um, on the exterior of the, of the stairs. Uh, the picture is sort of cunningly arranged to cover the area where all the light bulbs are missing. <coughs> I just was able to find one spot where you could take the picture. 
same columns appearing again. So one assumes that Leonidoff is, is looking into the interior detailing of the, of, of the project as a whole. Difficult to know who produced these, and, and the bits of furniture dotted about in, in the middle distance are clearly not original. Another of those coffered windows, this one is against a, a stair. It leads up to the top floor. The glass pavilion on the roof is still used for aromatherapy sessions. Everybody's sitting in rows and chairs, breathing uh, different uh, concoctions that are put into a a steamer of some kind. This is the interior of the theatre, which seems very Art Deco in its detailing, with the extraordinary window behind the stage, which was actually closed off with curtains, but I took the liberty of opening it because it seemed to be worthwhile showing what was being thought of in in the idea of the programme as a whole. Again, a lot of confusing details of different sources. I mean, one could almost consider the little um, corners around the roof as having Islamic aspects in its origins, perhaps the idea of Russia looking to the east again rather than to the west. Back of the stage and back out to the main stairs once more. This is Ginsberg's last work. It's quite astonishing, and I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw it. And it's called the Annex, locally known as the Nut, because it has six sides, and it's the Ministry of Heavy Industry, so everybody assumes that it's a nut to fit with a bolt. Um, seems a bit of a stretch to me, but it's a kind of pastiche of classical elements, and Ginsberg really knew his classical stuff. I mean, he had done his training in the, at the Brera in Milan, so he was well-versed in Renaissance architecture. But the whole scale of the place seems totally disproportionate. I mean, you can see the guy emptying the bin to the uh, left of the doorway, and there's somebody doing physical exercises up on the roof. It's early morning, and everybody has to go out and... and do a campaign of um, gymnastics before breakfast. It's the same time as Corb is doing this. And there is the great irony of it, the kind of savage irony of of Ginsberg being compelled into... He's dead, incidentally, by the time the building gets off the drawing boards, but I checked with the grandson when I ran into him on the street in Moscow about whether it really was Ginsberg, and he said, yes, it was, and... So one has to believe it. And I think it's one of the great tragedies. And, and this is why I added the footnote about the end of modernism in, in, in Russia, because this is where Ginsberg was forced to go you know, when Corb is doing this. Yeah. And it's, I mean, look at the brackets that are supporting the, the balcony. I mean, you've got the capitals and then you've got brackets above them. It's bizarre. You know, it's the only way you can put it. And it's gloomy and dull inside. There's a kind of sense of weight and heaviness that is um, stifling. And these capitals are really... I mean, where do they come from? It's, 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 uh, 
something bewildering to encounter. They, they look as though they would eat you alive. <laughs> so really, essentially, that is what I have to say about the, the, the sanatorium. That's just to refresh your palate, let's go back and have a look at uh, the great amphitheater halfway up the stairs. It, it, it is a beautiful place. The tree, incidentally, at the center was brought in at full size by Odzanikidze from Georgia. He was a Georgian, and he could play with money in spite of the fact that the famine is raging all over Russia. It's, it's a kind of another interesting irony. And genius at its finest, as a concluding image. As a kind of postscript, I'll just give you a little summary of status of things in Moscow and, and what I know of Russia. Since I took this, the great flying foil has disappeared of the porch. Uh, the balconies have been ripped away from the facade in the middle. The bays have all gone here. They were removed about a year ago. This is Izvestia one of the great state organs of the Soviet newspaper business. And that is Izvestia as it is now. Um, the, the windows underneath the balcony at the center and far right used to be the display windows where you could go and read the paper. Now they've knocked them through and on the left is Costa Coffee and on the right is Kentucky Fried Chicken or vice versa, I don't remember which. This was still there the last time I looked. It's one of the most beautiful little bits of ironwork that I've discovered. Pravda was burned by a severe arson attack about 10 years ago now. Nothing has happened to it since. It's, apparently it can be restored, but whether it ever will is, is, is another matter. It started in the cafeteria, which is in the Bay at the roof. <clears throat> this is the Central Soyuz. It's, it's perhaps a little better than most of the other recent efforts at restoration. Um, but they got the windows wrong when they did them over, and so now it sort of goes in waltz time. Instead of the, the, the rhythm that it had when it was originally established. The diving board is gone. It's the, probably the first catenary arc construction in Russia, and there was another one built in the pool that occupied the site of the Church of the Saviour in Khrushchev's time, but that was built 30 years later to exactly the same plan. That's gone too. Uh, the mechanics of the bakery, the mechanized bakery, which was a wonderful space, uh, have all been ripped out and it's no longer functioning as a bakery. I was told that it was to be turned into a cultural center, but I haven't heard anything lately about its fate. Um, this has been painted. All the windows have been replaced, and a new penthouse has been added on the roof. Um, this has been renovated beyond recognition. This is the great, um, the biggest of the Fabrika Kuknia in, in St. Petersburg on, on uh, Vasilyostrovsky Island. <coughs> It's roofed over now. You can see it on Google Maps, and there's a few um, photographs of it scattered about on, on the internet. 
but it's unrecognizable. Uh, this was the headquarters of the Russian Avant-Garde Foundation, but um, Gordiev bought it too late, and they'd already re- removed all the original windows by the time he got there, and it's become a kind of soulless shell. And this is the vertical coffering that I was speaking of in the uh, Miners Club of um, Magnitogorsk. That's my driver in the bottom foreground. So it's about six foot four. Um, this is the first building that was ever erected in Magnitogorsk, first permanent structure, and it's upwind from the, the mill, from this, this blast furnaces, so the air is relatively clean, but it's on the wrong side of the river now, and has, when the war effort came in the Second World War, they used vast resources of the ore, which had been thought that would last until now, at least. But it was mined out, effectively. 50% of all the armaments in the Second World War were fabricated in Magnitogorsk. And so when the iron ore was no longer worth exploiting, there was no more mining, so there was no more miners' club, and now it's just used as a background for paintball games. This is the interior. I was something of a celebrity when I arrived. It's not a place where tourists go. Um, I've never been in a place more polluted in my life. It it rained one afternoon and the streets were fizzing with the chemical reaction. And they wondered why I was there. And so I said, well, I was looking for the story of the beginnings of Magnitogorsk and for my master plan and, and so on and so forth. And... The television people wanted to do an interview, and I said, well, let's do it in the miners' club. And they had no idea where it was even, so I had to go and collect them and drive them there the following morning to conduct an interview in the arch of the proscenium. It was a somewhat bizarre exchange. This was the NKVD headquarters, and it's nicely dated for us in 1934, and you can see the little pasted on ornament and an otherwise modernist vocabulary to, on, around the windows, sort of reminiscent of the fascists, you might say. It's the interior as it is now. And another one. This was a room that was apparently, so the rumor has it, though I don't know whether it's any foundation because there probably weren't any survivors, but it was reputed to have been used for executions. And then back to Leonidoff's stairs. Thank you. <clears throat> Questions, anybody? Yeah, give them some light. <clears throat> so we have some time for Q&A. So questions, comments? Yeah. Thank you very much for a wonderful uh, presentation. What, what I'm interested in is um, the experiences of people in the Can you speak a little louder? Um, nobody is in the lounge. Uh, but is, um, is there any record of how people lived in these buildings? Then, when they yeah, were new? Yeah, then, yeah. Uh, I um, guess there, there must be. I mean, one can look in, in, in the literature to get some kind of descriptions of domestic life. 
Um, the, the, the man whose apartment it was in the Nakam film with the blue interior had lived there all his life. And he, did, he really hated it, I must admit. He, he, he was, I mean, it's not surprising. I mean, he leaks and the paint's falling down. Nobody's repaired the windows in years. But it's not the building's fault. I mean, his main objection, pardon the expression, is that he could hear his neighbors fart through the walls, which was, um, I guess that's pretty basic. If you, if you have to put up with that every day, it's, uh, it's not such a good soundproofing system. The, the walls were cracked. Again, they're they're pretty thin, I think, and and where they connect into the to the windows, the glazing, they taper to to almost nothing. So there's some there's they weren't really thinking about sound insulation. It was built obviously much more cheaply than the sanatorium, even though the concrete construction and the materials are innovative and being used beyond what they knew at the time. There, were, there was not any understanding of the difficulties of the materials that they were using. I mean, he used a kind of cinder block for the curtain walls that was then <coughs> stuckered over. And within know, a couple of years, the frost had got in behind and was beginning to pop the stucco off. So there have been issues with the building since its beginnings, but it's it's one of the most original buildings of the century. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I, in in my view, in spite of the fact that the Melnikov House is so magical, and, and I mean it is a superb structure. There's no question of that, and it's a work of genius. No question about it. But in terms of where it stands in in the general trajectory of the history of architecture in the 20th century, the Ginsburg building is far more important. It had a much greater impact and and utility in in the way the ideas that Ginsburg developed in its construction were adopted by other people as time went by. it's, It's amazing. I mean, it's wonderful walking through it. And every time I go back, I try to get in and have another look. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Um, it, it, it's, it makes you weep, the condition it's in. I mean, now that they've got some central heating in it, but the water's coming through when it rains to the, all the way down to the second floor. It's really it's dire. Um, and it's, it is... It's still structurally sound. I mean, it can be put right. There isn't any question about it. But the question is finding somebody who will adopt the project and get on with it and before too much more time passes. And there are all kinds of battles going forth about who owns the title to the various properties and disputes over ownership. And the people who are the last people who are living there, there still are people, the original residents, who are still living there, who are... You know, they're trying to get the most out of it as they can. You can hardly blame them for their share. You know? um, but it's not a happy story. I'm, 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 I wish I had good news to, to, to speak of on, in terms of the preservation of the modernist legacy. And there isn't any. I mean, the best news is maybe the Centre Soyuz, which is not an entire catastrophe and can be corrected. Um, I mean, it's supposed to have been done by architects who are professional conservation architects. And they can do the Baroque stuff wonderfully. I mean, they do that to a T. Um, 
So why can't they do the right windows for cold? And what's the point of doing it wrong? And I mean, I didn't even put in the Kharkov um, Gosprom building. They've painted that and they've changed all the windows, which has altered the whole balance of the composition. Because, I mean, part of the sense of the scale of that building comes from the way the windows, he uses different sizes of windows. So you see um, the big <coughs> vertical windows that slide up the um, stairwells. How do I get out of this into my basic menu? Just Ah, right. So if I can maybe find it. If I can. Yeah, can we make it smaller so I can see more at a time? I think you just didn't control minus. Yeah, there we go. That's not nice. It's in here somewhere. Just got to find it. Where's it gone? Well, it's eluding me. This is Majal's other sanatorium in um, Sochi. Which is, has the same kind of machine motifs. Like, I don't know if anybody remembers the old telephone switching stuff that would go. It has that kind of um, motif. Whether it's just me thinking about it, I don't know. But why do the balconies suddenly end? It's just like the way those interlocking um, quadrants intersect. <coughs> But um, basically what, what's happened is that by altering the scale of the, the small panes and replacing them with, you know, they were this size and now they're this size, so it it's makes the building seem smaller than it, than it did when it had its original glass composition. And they were steel frame windows that were poured and they didn't maintain them properly, so they rusted and twisted and the glass broke and so it ends up in the situation where you can't repair it anymore. And nobody wants to spend the money to replace them, like for like. I mean, that's the problem with Narcofin. What do you do? How do you begin to restore that building? Because if you do it with the same materials, you're going to have the same problems. So, I mean, if you take a literal point of view, like the Bauhaus Masters' houses, which are exemplary in the way that they've been restored, um, I mean, that's the model that they desperately need somebody to take on <coughs> something like the Ginsburg building or the Melnikov house or the Textile Institute in Moscow as a demonstration, say this is the way to do it, so that people recognize how beautiful these buildings are. I mean, the grandson has a project for converting the Narkonfin into a boutique hotel, which is... I mean, it kind of grates against the idea of the socialist condenser that was the original intention. But at least it allows you to keep the individual units as they were. I mean, if it was me, and I could find... If, if, if I was an oligarch and I had billions of dollars, I'd turn it over to 
the university and do it for master's housing or visiting graduate students to live in or something like that. But it's, that's not going to happen. So let's see um, if it can be turned into a boutique hotel. At least, I mean, it, it, it preserves the integrity of the, of the structure, even if it perverts the idea of what the original intention of the building was. It's a problem. It's really difficult. Professor, yeah, sure. Thank you for a very interesting wonderful talk, thoughtful, informative. Um, my question is this: uh, much of what you have to say about the Kids that sanatorium was couched in those terms of adapting a modernist idiom to right. uh, compromise uh, said earlier. Yeah, uh, orthodoxy, yeah. cultural orthodoxy with its own architectural language, eclectic, uh, and, and, and uh, pompous. Uh, I was wondering whether, we, uh, this is certainly there, uh, there's no doubt about that, mm. uh, but I was wondering whether some of that language, uh, some of that program cannot be read also uh, in terms of adapting a, a modernist uh, idiom, which, which is, uh, whose birthplace is, is the city, to what is obviously a countryside location. So, yeah. so from the realm of labor to what is the realm of, uh, of relaxation, so, so it's a kind of pastoral. Yeah, right. Uh, to a pastoral setting, especially those classical elements, particularly in the park, yeah. um, as, as, as he's designing, uh, those flights of stairs, balconies, etc. Uh, um, clearly, there is a he goes beyond his comfort zone in order to incorporate what uh, a, a, what is clearly a setting that is not his primary setting. Um, and 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 if 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 we employ that um, that, that explanation, then the question becomes: I mean. Uh, we still don't leave the realm of Stalinism since Stalin right, no, right, is right, always moving exactly. toward that pastoral yeah, no, no, world. This, he, it's a compromise. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that's that's why it isn't as powerful and potent a building as the Narkomfin. But you have to think, what would he have done if he had been able to take his own trajectory in, in the way that he had begun with the Narkomfin project? That's why I put the counterpoint of Corb's Marseille building opposite the, 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 the annex, which is, I mean, the annex is a horrendous travesty. You know? And what must he have been thinking when he was nailed to the floor like that? I mean, it's heartbreaking. You know? the, the irony of it is savage. You know? And you know, the, the guy was a brilliant thinker. He, he, wrote, he wrote the book about constructivism, style and epoch. That's the, tomorrow's conversation. You know? And... I mean, there's, there's one of his editorials. He says, it's not possible to look forward if you're facing backwards. And here he is, the end of his life, facing backwards. You know, and, and it's heartbreaking. It's, it's a... It's a, it's a I mean, it's... It's the end. I mean, it's, it's, modernism is over. You know, from, at least as, as, the, as the modernist architect, I don't use constructivism because Malikoff never considers himself a constructivist. You know. So I just use the collective of modernism in, in describing. But it, it's from the early the, the period immediately after the revolution, by 
32 is dying, and by 37 it's dead, uh, effectively. Um, more questions here? I have a question since I saw the show at the uh, Royal Academy, yeah. I guess a year or so ago. I'd like to hear you say a few words about your orientation to photography uh, of these actual monuments, in part because I know that you're involved in the restoring or the collecting, examining the legacy of these works partially seen through the lens of photography during the at the Shusef Museum. Can so you what, do it what, again? Sorry. What's your orientation as a photographer? Oh, your orientation to the um, act of photographing, to having these oh, images. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I, I kind of vo avoid the fact of um, my knowledge of the history of photography. I mean, it's, it informs what I do, there's no question about that. Um, but I try not to make a pastiche. Uh, I don't. I mean, there are obviously nods to the modernists, and because I know Rodchenko's work very well, I'm such a Rodchenko friend. Um, and I was surprised and astonished to see Rodchenko's darkroom with the boxes of glass plates still on the same shelves. You know, it's amazing. Uh, um, but I'm trying always to respond to the subject. You know? So now I'm working on call, and it's a different proposition. I, I mean, the, the book before the Lost Vanguard was Andor, and it's a different thing again. I mean, I'm trying to find the way to describe what's before me without just being dully repetitive. You know? I, ha I have this kind of dispute with the um, kind of commercial end of architectural photography as it appears in the journals, which is so repetitive that it's, to me, largely stultifyingly boring because it, it doesn't allow any real interpretation of, of the building. This kind of distortion of the way the light falls in space by people using fill flash to illuminate everything and that's, it seems to me completely irrelevant in a way because the way the light falls in space is, is this is crucial. And one of the things that I have always been aware of, I think it's probably because I was a chorister when I was a child, was my whole raison d'etre for being in that place was to make sound in space. So I think about architecture as the enclosure of space, not mass. You know? And I think that makes for a very different point of view. <coughs> I hope that's some sort of answer. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you very much for your presentation. I was just thinking that what's happening with these buildings is, of course, very symbolic uh, of what's happening with the memory and understanding of Stalinism. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm saying that uh, I have a feeling that what's happening to these buildings uh, is very symbolic, allegorical, um, telling us about what's happening with the heritage of Stalinism. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so that's probably the problem because uh, yeah. uh, because of their construction, they cannot be commercialized, but because of the memory of their function, they cannot be lived in. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, it's... And so one kind of, uh, you know, one kind of trying to forget, the forgetting of one 
brings about the forgetting and desolation of the other. Yeah, but the but the Seven Sisters are popular places now, and people are buying. Uh, commercially popular, and, yes, but yeah. that's uh, exactly. But that's uh, what Kevin was asking about: is, how these principles finally commercialized what they had yeah. to do to make them sellable and viable. And, uh, and the only modernist project in, in Moscow that's a popular address is the house on the river. Yeah. Because it's, uh, it's a location. Uh, I wanted, wanted also to ask you if you ever considered going to Moscow Crematorium. I, I was there. <laughs> yeah, did you see the church? Yes. Yeah, uh, because I remember how... There were funerals and, going on. I, just, I, I do have a handful of pictures of it. Uh, I have some pictures of how it was uh, uh, transforming. Because the project of rebuilding the crematorium into the church took uh -huh. several years, right? And I was coming there to visit my graves, and I saw yeah. what they were doing. Yeah. Have you been inside uh, the crematorium itself? No, I, I mean, there were funerals in progress. I it's, felt there were good It's fantastic yeah. because in the middle now, uh, you have something that looks like uh, I don't know uh, a church. Yeah. Or at least there are some kind of uh, uh, posters which are supposed to be icons yeah. and it smells yeah. incense, and it's fenced off with plywood. But behind it, the whole of the uh, interior is intact. Right. And you have huge glass, uh, I don't know, containers or glass shelves with urns right. with dead people right, right away. Bolsheviks, and then you have um, uh, uh, well, labeled, <laughs> labeled, labeled, oh, really? and also labeled by the administration, asking the family to remove them, oh. and all those labels from the administration. So obviously, no one comes there, and no one removes this. Right. And then you have uh, the architect is also buried there, right. and uh, uh, his bust. You can see his bust there among these things, and in the middle is just plywood and something that looks like a church. Yeah. Bizarre. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of these strange and it's very dislocations. Temporary, and very temporary. Right, right. After all, yeah. It seems to me that it, uh, it, would, uh, it would be useful to uh, add uh, to your wonderful presentation um, um, one more uh, source. Uh, two months ago, uh, a book uh, was published, a Moscow new book by a uh, well-known uh, historian of uh, architecture, Dmitry Kuminsky, an architect, Nikolai Milutin. Uh, and he mm, compares Dmitry uh, Kuminsky, uh, so to say, enforced uh, neoclassicalization of Wesley Ginsburg in the end of his life, right. and uh, neoclassicalization of Nikolai Milutin in the uh, 30s. Right. Uh, Nikolai Milutin uh, as the author of Soft World. Again? Nikolai Milutin as the author of the book Soft World. Yes, yes, of course, yes, absolutely. Uh, Milutin is an extraordinary character. He, he survived the firing squad. Yeah. And uh, he uh, tried to become the professional architect in the end of 30s. Yes. Uh, right. He was uh, uh, a well known architect. He be became a student of Moscow Architectural Institute. Yes, no, I, he, yeah. uh, amazing guy. Yeah. And he produced the neoclassical uh, uh, projects uh, as a Ginsburg right. in, in the end of his life. Right, right. It's an amazing. That's. It's, I mean, his life is extraordinary. I think. I mean, what an early career. I mean, the whole early story of his life is fascinating. Any more questions? 
His, his father was a fisherman. <laughs> Unlike uh, Ojon Akita, who was an aristocrat. He was a Georgian aristocrat. Yeah. <coughs> I, don't, I don't really have a question, but I just want to mention that. Uh, no, no, it's just a note that Dasha Zhukovic actually mentions the Dom Nakam in as her earliest acquaintance, one among her earliest acquaintances. Yeah, but so with, why uh, isn't she doing so? So there is hope that an oligarch would decide to buy the thing and do something. Yeah. I don't think it was Abramovich who had owned it for a while, was it? I don't know. But he could if he wanted. He could, to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is the guy who should give it to the university. I mean, he could do it. And she could tell him at the job of a hat. But this, you know, oligarchs are rivals. I mean, Gordiev had the Malikov house, so he didn't have interest in Malikov. The uh, uh, restoration of uh, constructivist uh, buildings in Moscow is rare, but uh, uh, it, uh, uh, in, in, in rare um, cases, uh, it's, uh, it is uh, successful. Uh, for example, um, an old uh, um, constructivist uh, depot uh, was restored in Moscow as a part of the Jewish Museum. Yeah, yeah, the garage. Yeah, but you know, that's, that's sort of. That's Shukla, yeah, but it's sort of half right. It's not really right. You know. He redid the roof, and so Shusev's great, um, Shukov's great engineering was lost in a way. Uh, architectural critic Grigory uh, Revzin published uh, one by one articles in the Commerzant newspaper uh, about the necessity of restoration of. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of talk, but nobody does that. I think that's well, the problem. There is civic activism that is. It's better than it was, right? There's it's better than it was. I mean, there's maps now, yeah. which is Clem Cecil and the few and the example but of there's the still not the, a good <coughs> And there's the example of the defeat of the Gazprom building in St. Petersburg, which allows yeah, any right. kinds of hopes for architectural activism. Right. Any? Can I just... Finish maybe with the unsuccessful renovation. I think it's image 153 that you have us from. Yeah, okay, good, thank you. (laughs) Yes, right, absolutely, good. (laughs) Yeah, this is the double double Mm-hmm. It seems very small. Yeah. It's gone tiny for some reason. We can make it, drag it and make it bigger. Yeah, there we go. Most <coughs> of the original windows, and now they're vinyl, you know, so it's, it's, it's really different. I don't have pictures of the new ones. And you know, the, the sucker wasn't in great shape, as you can see, but. And they've, they've sort of patched it here and there, and, and now it's painted. And once you paint sucker, that's it. It's really hard to get it off again. I mean, it can be done. Um, the other story that I was told was that the Germans hung the partis- hang the partisans off the flying balconies in the Second World War. That's the original glazing. I, I mean, the, I, I, I had about five minutes inside. You can go 5,000 miles and they let you in for five minutes. It was really frustrating. So I didn't get to see any of the interior spaces beyond one hallway. I just got down on my knees almost all to know there. Apparently this is now in pretty bad shape too. It was still 
pretty much intact, and the very tank would be removed. But I could go on. <laughs> There's the Malenkov house. I mean, it's a good, good place to. I mean, that has to be one of the most sublime spaces of the century as well. I mean, the guy was a genius. There's no question about it. You know, it's a wonderful actor. <coughs> <laughs> 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 <laughs>